Welcome to the podcast. I'm Bruce Mole from Commonwealth Magazine, inviting you to listen to a new series focused on societal changes wrought by COVID-19. It's produced by our good friends at the Massing Polling Group. Enjoy the show. Say that they're not jackhammering right now. You'll hear it when they do. You can hear it throughout the building. Ann Taylor. Senior executive assistant at the Box Center was in the middle of overseeing major renovations to the Wang Theater in Boston. It was mid-July. Looking around, you could see there was a lot of preparation happening to welcome guests back a few weeks later, on August 6th, what would be their first show since shutting down. Leaks were being plugged, the elevator getting repaired. Anne told me what the upcoming weeks looked like for her and staff. Um, Jason Isbell, we're doing a VIP event with our board members, and that's very exciting. That is in September, Saturday night, I believe it's September 18th. So it's really exciting. It's really exciting, and everyone is um, anxious to come back. The Wang Theater did see people come back. Guests returned to see comedian Ali Wong on August 6th and 7th. Both shows were sold out, and Anne later told me everything went off without a hitch. And the theater will continue to host events for its guests. However, new highly contagious variants of the coronavirus feel more threatening with each passing week. The indie rock band The Decemberists were scheduled to perform at the Wang Theater just this week, but rescheduled due to concern about COVID. New worries have tamped down our earlier optimism and thrown our grand fall plans into question. This uncertain territory requires decision-making, like should masks be required for students and teachers when school returns to in-person this fall? Same for patrons of indoor restaurants, theaters, and transit riders. Should there be limits on gatherings, vaccination requirements? Some decisions will be left up to individuals, but some will be in the hands of our government. So what decisions will our elected leaders make? And what informs those decisions? What lessons did officials learn from leading during a pandemic? And of those, which will they be taking with them? That's what we're talking about today in our final episode of this series. I'm Libby Gormley, and this is Mass Reboot, a podcast about restarting Massachusetts after COVID and what we lost along the way. This is episode eight, Government. Well, we're gathered here once again, together, yet apart for this final episode. I'm here with Jennifer Smith. Hi. And Steve Cazella. Hello again. So we should start by addressing the elephant in the room. We started making this podcast about restarting Massachusetts after COVID. I say it right there in the intro. Um, and when we started this a few months back, that seemed like a concept that made a lot of sense. Things were reopening. Cases were way down. Hope was in the air. But now, as we record our final episode, it feels less like that. How are each of you thinking about the issues we've covered so far, given what now seems like the direction of the pandemic? Some parts of it seem delayed, I think, is the word that sticks out to me the most, particularly just what's going to happen with work. you know. And as we've talked about throughout the series, that has so many other downstream impacts. 
if a large number of office workers do go back, that changes things in one direction. If they go back later, that changes things or pushes them back. So I think what the reboot has kind of turned into is we're learning to live with it in a new way. We're learning to live with the new situation with COVID. Um, and how government is responding to that, I think, is really interesting, how they're kind of adapting to the rise of the Delta variant and how they're making or in the cases of many issues, not making the decisions that need to be made. Well, throughout this, I've been watching the tension between the state and local governments really closely. In every topic we've covered, one big question that keeps coming up is, whose call is this? Because the state wants to reserve the right for making its big rescues, you know, like like aid packages, stimulus plans, that sort of thing. But then the responsibility for tough calls like mask mandates or vaccination requirements very quickly fell to local governments or business organizations or school committees. And we'll touch on the back and forth between the executive and legislative branches more in this episode. Given that COVID is very much not kicked, I expect that future resilience efforts are going to continue to see those divides between state and local and the different branches, even at the state level. We should also note that while COVID has dominated governmental operations at all levels, this particular episode is focused on Massachusetts state government rather than what happened at the local or federal levels. So, Steve, Jen, shall we one more time? All right, let's go. Let's do it. In the earliest days of the COVID-19 pandemic, state leaders faced two main challenges. The first was how to respond to the outbreak itself. The second was responding to the overlapping policy crises COVID brought with it. One state representative was right in the thick of both. My personal work schedule was, I actually doubled my number of hours in the emergency department. So I was working every Friday, Saturday, Sunday overnight, and I'd kind of flip back into a daytime schedule for the House of Representatives and my work in the community. And it wasn't That's just, John Santiago. You know, He's both a state representative and an emergency room physician at Boston Medical Center. He remembers seeing patients coming into the emergency room early on, before he and his fellow physicians really knew much about COVID. And just the number of people coming into the hospital and things that I, quite frankly, had never seen before. I mean, we had people coming in who were you know, having a difficult time breathing with low oxygen saturations and making decisions, knowing that this very well could be the last time this patient is going to be able to speak with his or her family. Meanwhile, his other job demanded his attention as well. While at the same time, my role in the state house, particularly with respect to um, the working group that the Speaker DeLeo at the time put together a group of five members, and I was one of them to really help provide that response and to make sure that the house was still going to run and be able to do its job during the pandemic. The first challenge was a familiar one. Lots of people had to figure out how to keep doing what they'd been doing when they couldn't do it in person anymore. The idea of the state legislature continuing its standard operations was out of the question. And as you can recall, I mean, we take votes in the house and a chamber with 160 members, and that isn't the exact scenario where you want to be during the pandemic. So one of the first things we did was to come up with a system to remote vote. Once they worked out all the usual tech issues that come with implementing a new all-virtual system, COVID response took over. The needs were vast, both in terms of responding to the health crisis and the economic challenges. When the state went into COVID response mode, other priorities fell by the wayside. I think our last vote in the chamber 
was for a, a bill to fund um, a large transportation package. And I remember taking that vote. Um, and I think that was part gas tax, part fee on Uber Lyft, and uh, a significant invest in, investment in our transportation system. That bill, passed by the House in early March, was a huge win for many transportation advocates who had been looking for major progress on funding for years. But it stalled when it hit the Senate, just as COVID hit Massachusetts. It wasn't until January 2021 that a version of the transportation bond bill was signed into law, but the provisions to address revenue did not pass. Katie Lannon is a Statehouse News Service reporter and president of the Massachusetts Statehouse Press Association. She remembers the significant shift in attention last spring. That was the end of the line there because we just, it was all pandemic all the time. Anything that had been moving through the legislative process was put at least on hold for months and months. No one was sure when we were going to come back to those things, I think. And though the legislature was working on COVID response full time, the balance of power on Beacon Hill dramatically tilted toward Governor Baker. The governor, you know, as we all know, declared a, a state of emergency on March 10th, 2020. I'm sure that date is emblazoned in a lot of people's brains. Um, as the kind of the day that things changed. And that gave him a lot of executive power. Massachusetts wasn't alone in encouraging swift action from the executive branch. States across the country saw similar emergency orders and governors stepping in with directives for closures. At the start of 2020, Katie said, legislators felt the emergency situation called for such a move. It demanded speed. And, you know, there's one way of saying that is that the whole reason for kind of executive powers is that you have one person making a decision or, you know, one person with the aid of his cabinet versus 200 people who have a very prescribed process for how they have to make decisions. The breadth of the things both Governor Baker and the legislature had to cover was staggering. The crises compounded each other. Existing problems and disparities did not just become apparent. They often got worse. State Senator Adam Hines saw that up close. Increasingly, I'm looking at, at our experience with COVID as the result of a massive policy failure um, over generations. And it took a pandemic to lay bare the flaws in our economy and our society. And it's, it's ultimately a rejection of the inequities held up in the most visible and clear way possible during this experience because it manifested in real life and death. It resulted in positive or negative COVID test results, losing a job or a business versus building your savings in a bank account or in your stock portfolio. Surveys that we at the Massing Polling Group conducted in those days illustrated that theme clearly. Some people were able to mostly ride out COVID at home, while others felt the pain right away. And it just kept getting worse. The governmental response, first and foremost, was to prevent related disasters, such as mass homelessness, hunger, and joblessness. And the actions they took helped to stave off some of the worst of the potential impacts of the pandemic. So we saw the legislature early on kind of take a, once they started getting into kind of the COVID legislation, taking a targeted approach going after things like data collection, um, certain restaurant relief measures where they saw a, a specific need. And a lot of those were pieces were added into budget bills, which were 
the main things that were moving through the legislature last year after the pandemic took hold. With remote work continuing for the foreseeable future, the negative impacts on small businesses will likely stick around as well. Many in Massachusetts support extending some version of these 2020-era policies, particularly aid to small businesses. 74% say they would support continuing aid to small businesses hurt by the pandemic. Other proposals are somewhat less popular, particularly extending the eviction moratorium, which drew 54% support. The Massachusetts legislature moved faster than usual during the pandemic, but things still fell through the cracks for periods of time. And then when the state of emergency ended this past June, they did not manage to pass a bill extending some of the relief measures and other pandemic policies until after the emergency had technically ended. There was a a gap of a few hours where those policies lapsed. They included some language that retroactively covered it, but that was kind of uh, in keeping with Things like, you know, the budget is usually signed into law a few days into July. The, the deadlines are, aren't always super hard and fast on Beacon Hill. They get it around the deadline. Those legislative deadlines aren't just dates on a calendar. They're essential for businesses and localities to plan around. That created headaches for things like town clerks and municipal boards who were wondering how they were going to schedule their meetings that week. Um, created headaches for restaurants and bars that were wondering if they'd still be able to sell to-go cocktails on Wednesday. So there were some, some hiccups there with that for sure, although it ultimately got resolved. As we record this episode, the legislature is in its August recess, pandemic or no. Senate President Karen Spilka announced earlier this spring that legislators and staff would return to the statehouse in September after the August recess and operate on a hybrid schedule. So far, no announcements have been made to the contrary, but when it opens again to the public remains a question. As it is now, there are both good and bad parts of an all-remote legislature. Senator Hines remembers when hearings started streaming online. Anyone could watch or participate. I live two and a half hours from the state house, and so when I'm asking constituents to drive across the state to testify for three minutes on a, a bill that's a priority of ours, um, it, it's it's hard to get takers, and yet when you ask them to log into um, a remote hearing, they're far more likely to do so and have done so. And we've seen increases in participation in municipal meetings and um, in boards and and the like. And so um, this is this, these are positive outcomes to um, to you know citizen participation and governance. And um, and so we'll be doing a full review on how we can make sure some of these are here for the long run as well. For reporters covering the statehouse, there were similar benefits. Katie said the breadth of live streams was tremendous. So it's not only the the formal sessions that all the legislators attend where they vote on kind of the major bills. It's not only those that are broadcast on the internet now. It's the, you know, the ones that are a couple minutes and maybe they vote on a liquor license bill or things that affect a town or advance a, a bridge naming those sessions are now being live streamed as well, and a lot of hearings are being live streamed. However, here's the double-edged sword of online access. Housing and small business assistance was technically easier to find. Everything from the local school committee to state transportation hearings could be watched in real time online. But taking advantage of that access could require frantically refreshing 20 different websites, if you knew about those websites at all. 
while people talk about, you know, public access being increased that way, because you can, you know, put things up on the internet while you're making dinner, you don't have to drive into Boston or take the train into Boston to testify at a hearing. You have to know the hearing is happening. Um, And a lot of the hearings now, you have to sign up in advance to testify, you know, days in advance. And I, I don't know who's checking the legislature's website necessarily on a Thursday, you know, by 5 p.m. to see if they have to sign up for some to testify the following Tuesday. Whether remote hearings remain the primary option going forward is still unclear. There was a time a few months back when reopening looked like a linear process. Vaccinations would go up, infections would go down. And as a result, the state would reopen and everything would go back to normal. But the arrival of the Delta variant has changed our expectations. So how are state leaders responding? More on that after the break. Today's episode of Mass Reboot is sponsored by our good friends at Rasky Partners. They're a longtime supporter of ours and a nationally recognized government affairs and communications firm. For over 30 years, the team at Rasky has worked with all types of organizations, large and small, helping each one reach their business objectives through advocacy and storytelling. Find out more at rasky.com. That's R-A-S-K-Y.com. For a year, the face of the pandemic response and the power behind it was Governor Baker. But with the state of emergency over now, the legislature is reasserting itself. As the year went on, and certainly one year later, uh, there was a need to rebalance that, and and um, and now you see that ongoing exchange of who, how do we uh, retain our, our our constitutional role and and um, traditional functions, and and so um, there's a real time limit to that. I would say more than anything. As the legislature takes on its new role or takes back its old one, Senator Hines is also thinking about what COVID has taught us. If we don't. Um, as a, as a government, as elected officials, do everything in our power now to correct those inequities that led to more death in certain communities, or even worse, if we let persist growing income inequality since COVID started, COVID-19 started, with all of its implications that are well known in terms of for children and education attainment or lifelong earnings and health outcomes, then we would have failed uh, once again. He's chair of the Senate Committee on Reimagining Massachusetts Post-Pandemic Resiliency. The purpose of this committee, Senator Hines says, is to be sure we take the lessons we learned during COVID and apply them as we recover. Um, it's both looking at the vulnerabilities that we've, um, that we've seen in, in stark view uh, that have led to disparate outcomes by, um, by, by race, by income, uh, and so understanding what we're going to do to, to fight back against those, those tragic implications. Certain communities suffered greater impacts during COVID. There were deeper economic losses, higher infection and death rates, and just bigger losses all around. They started right away in the very earliest days and have continued through to today. Looking ahead, it's very possible COVID disparities will continue. Reports about recovering from the pandemic all share one thing in common. They anticipate very significant amounts of remote work, even once office workers have the option to go back. That could prolong the inequities that COVID exposed. 
we also are trying to understand ongoing transitions and, and be prepared for future implications and, and understanding where we as the government need to invest for the future, of course, and in, in that is uh, understanding the future of work and where we might see concentrated job loss. Is there um, a retraining that we need to um, support and, and promote? Are there sectors that need support in the, the short term? Are, is there uh, real infrastructure investment to, to allow for an adoption of remote work? Um, We've heard about the impacts this could cause from others on earlier episodes. Budget challenges for the MBTA, job losses for service workers, child care challenges, and changing land use patterns, to name just a few. Senator Hines says these issues are all on the docket. And with federal money coming in, big changes might be in the cards. Soon, the reimagining committee he serves on will lay out their ideas. A lot of the the work of the the new committee on reimagining Massachusetts is is deliberately going to put a, put out a set of recommendations this fall so that it's a part of the conversation about how we're going to use the um, the federal funds and and making sure that um, this is work that is directing some of the um, the use of federal funds in Massachusetts. As legislators look at the big future focused ideas, they're also considering the immediate day to day threat of COVID. But, Katie says, we aren't seeing sustained pressure within the legislature for another shutdown. I personally haven't seen people advocating for, you know, a- another full-scale shutdown. It's more of a, a discussion of what kind of measures, whether that's uh, more mask use or, you know, the vaccine passport idea or vaccination requirements um, for certain jobs. It's a discussion of what what measures can be taken, you know, to to get us through this wave, this peak, this crest. Public schools are set to reopen in just days. And as of right now, there is no statewide mask mandate in place. Governor Charlie Baker said in July that such a mandate was unnecessary. But in a statewide poll of residents, 81 percent said they would support mask mandates for anyone entering a school building. This echoes other polling that we and others have done on the issue, showing mask mandates in schools are popular. You know, you can see very clear areas that that point to um, vaccination requirements and mask requirements. And uh, I would put on that list certainly our our healthcare facilities and um, and in schooling. I would, you know, requiring masking just makes sense. Though mandates hold very broad support, masking in schools is currently being determined on a town-by-town basis. Representative Santiago says local districts are in need of more direction from the government. I mean, they're looking for some leadership. They're looking for some standardization. I think the challenge throughout these past 18 months has been some of the mixed messaging that we've been hearing. And what's challenging and when I talk to patients is that they hear certain things from certain people, uh, whether it's on Facebook or social media, Um, the news, and it's hard for them to make sense of this all. You know, we don't staff school committees with public health experts, right? Nor do we expect them to be that. And so they're looking for some leadership and some guidance and just for things to make sense. While Massachusetts vaccination levels are better than most states, Representative Santiago and other medical professionals emphasize that raising vaccination levels remains essential. As we look for the FDA to hopefully finalize um, the the approval process. My guess is that vaccinations will go up. But in the meantime, it's how do we get folks vaccinated? I think mandates are just that. And it's important for people to realize that 
you know, when people say mandate, there are exceptions to this. We've run surveys on a school vaccine mandate for teachers. In our most recent one, 83% of Massachusetts residents support it. Opposition to mandating vaccinations for teachers is 8%. There's just very little interest in leaving either masks or vaccinations to chance. Part of the reasoning is that younger children are still not eligible for vaccination, and there's far less support for moving school back toward online or hybrid models for the year ahead. Representative Santiago is in agreement. I am in full support of uh, city employees uh, getting vaccinated. I'm in full support of making sure that um, our schools and our education system and staff uh, are, are vaccinated. Because remember, we have an unvaccinated population uh, in kids under 12. And so moving with the proof of vaccination, I do think that we need to be moving in that direction and, and preparing um, the small business community and having those conversations should the Delta variant continue to, to worsen. There is a lot of back and forth, at least among politicians, around vaccine mandates. On masks, Katie Lannon says a statewide masking mandate for schools is a possibility. The question of masks in schools, of um, vaccine requirements in different industries and even sectors of state government. We have a few of the constitutional officers, the auditor, the treasurer, the attorney general have announced their vaccine mandate policies for their staff. Um, Masks and vaccines are going to be the big ones on, on COVID, I think, as we get into the fall. There is a bill that would require universal masking in, in uh, Massachusetts schools. And State Senator Becker Bausch filed the bill, saying in a press release that she did so to, quote, give families and school staff the peace of mind they deserve about protecting their health and safety. And just as schools are strategizing about how best to operate this fall, so too are lawmakers. I asked Katie what exactly is going on with the state house's potential reopening. Case numbers are up, though vaccines have proven very effective at staving off serious cases of COVID, and about 65% of Massachusetts is fully vaccinated. The building itself remains closed to the public, um, and it's still a big question mark as to when and how it will reopen. Um, There's been kind of tenuous talk about the fall. As you mentioned, Jennifer, the Delta variant concerns, I think, are hanging over a lot of those tentative plans that were sketched out. I know in the Senate, uh, Senate President Karen Spilka has talked about bringing staff back in on a hybrid basis after Labor Day. And it's still up in the air, really, when members of the public will have have access to the seat of state government in person. Representative Santiago says he thinks remote is the right approach for the time being. I think that we've shown over the past past 18 months that the legislature has been able to do the people's work in a very effective manner um, that is still one that is engaging uh, stakeholders, the the public at large. We've been able to use technology in a way that I don't think many people thought um, was possible. Much like in the spring of 2020, the majority of the legislature's attention right now will mostly be swallowed up by COVID-related items, Katie says as kind of a way to read tea leaves or what bills have gotten early hearings kind of so far this summer 
Um, those usually that can often signal a, an interest level that's there. Um, you know, there have been bills related to, to school vaccine requirements that have already had hearings. And I think the, you know, the legislature is aware that the, the COVID related matters are, are more timely. There are billions of dollars in federal funds heading to Massachusetts. Senator Hines and Representative Santiago both see that as a chance to shore up sectors across the state hit by COVID as a start. You know, we have a once in a lifetime opportunity to really invest in so many of the things that we care about to really begin to address these issues of disparity in a way that became very obvious to so many of us during the COVID-19 pandemic. The governor lifted the state of emergency in June, though earlier this year the expectation was that the state wouldn't fully reopen until August. The balance of power then shifted back to what we're used to, with Baker's emergency executive authority ended, and with a full slate of state-level and legislative races on the docket for 2022, we're hearing from more and more voices with every passing week. Though it's not yet clear whether Baker will actually run for re-election, gubernatorial candidates have made clear some distinctions in how they would handle the pandemic differently. One thing that is interesting is we have, you know, right now, a sitting lawmaker running for governor in Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz. We have a sitting lawmaker running for lieutenant governor in uh, Representative Tammy Gouveia. Um, and both of them are have been outspoken critics anyways before they launched their campaigns of the governor's pandemic response. Um, but that really, you know, public health related through lines of equity, of the level of response um, to the pandemic will become campaign issues. And, you know, we see that too with with. Ben Downing, former state senator, as a Democrat for governor, you know, he's come out and said that the governor should be putting a mask mandate back in place. It's not just pressure from the Democrats. Baker will face a primary challenge from within his own party if he runs for a third term. And COVID remains the campaign issue. And then you have Jeff Deal, another former lawmaker, running as a Republican. Um, He's saying no mask mandates. You know, the people have been through enough and it's it's kind of all happening on two levels. There's the public health level and the political level. And it is we've seen the tangle between public health and politics throughout this series. And it's gotten more complicated by the Delta variant and rising case numbers. But the reboot is underway. We originally thought this would mean restarting post covid. It would be simple and only flow in one direction. But we're starting things back up now in a much more complex situation. Polls show residents mostly okay with the precautions necessary to live in this new world. The specifics of what this means for each sector we've looked at are pretty different. Delta's emergence is putting government at all levels in a tough spot. Faced with the renewed physical threat of COVID, but also trying to keep things as open as possible. It's also putting serious pressure on anything involving large indoor gatherings. Arts organizations are watching case counts and local policies especially keenly. You may remember we started Mass Reboot on a mostly dark stage at the Wang Theater in downtown Boston. The ghost light is a tall lamp that stands in the middle of the stage when all the other lights are off. 
the Wang Theater was running what they called the Ghost Light Series through much of 2020. Musicians would play to a mostly dark theater, illuminated only by the ghost light. Look up, look up, there are angels flying low enough to see. It's how they kept art alive during the worst months of the pandemic. When I spoke with Anne at the Wang Theater, crews were cleaning the chandeliers in the Grand Lobby. And what a difference. Like, they look beautiful all of the time, but once they clean them and up, it's the sparkle is just so much more intense. Really? These aren't just any chandeliers. These are 100-year-old priceless antiques. Oh, yes. I hear someone cleaning something up there. You can hear them tinkering. Oh, it's one of the ones up there. They're so large that they have to be slowly lowered to the floor with a hand crank. I think it's three or four hours. I know. It's just, and I love them. I mean, to look at them closely, these real crystals. Getting the lights just right is an essential part of welcoming back the audience. When the chandeliers illuminated, they drove away the near total darkness that's plagued the Wang Theater for more than a year. Anne was looking forward to that very moment in the weeks and days leading up to it. And they're going to look beautiful. And people are going to walk in and look up and say, (gasps) and I love watching that. I'll stand in the side of the Grand Lobby and watch people come in. And You know, you come into the entrance of the theater. It's nice. But once you come into the Grand Lobby and you see four floors of marble, crystals, murals, and people that are coming in, especially for the first time, They actually stop in their tracks because they had no idea. From the outside, you have no idea what's inside. And it's obviously something they didn't expect. And I I love that. As we re-enter the theater and other public spaces, it's with a mix of hope and trepidation. After more than a year living mostly alone or in small groups, these returns will mark symbolic passages from one period to the next. But we also know that the time before the pandemic is gone, and there's no going back. Ways of life have changed, businesses have closed, time has passed, and many have lost loved ones they'd built their worlds around. We also know now COVID hasn't left us, it's just changed. So throwing caution to the wind, like we'd hoped, can't really happen at this point. While the reboot looks different than what we thought, things are restarting, bit by bit. And as the lights come on and we look around, what will we see? What happens when you reboot an entire state? Mass Reboot has been a production of the Mass Inc. Polling Group in association with Commonwealth Magazine. It's produced by Steve Gazella, Jennifer Smith, and me, Libby Gormley. Our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Our sincere thank you for listening.